welcome to Heard About, the podcast about the biggest moments in communications with the people who were behind them. I'm your host, Winston Chang. More than any other sport, baseball is radio's perfect match. It's a slower-moving sport, and it boils down to one-on-one matchups, the pitcher on the mound and the batter at the plate, which means you can describe all the action as it's happening. It's harder in other sports, like, say, football or basketball, where a dozen things are going on all at once really, really fast. In fact, just a year after the first commercial radio broadcast took place in America in November 1920, the first baseball game was broadcast on radio. That was Pirates vs. Phillies, August 5, 1921. Later that year, in October, was the first World Series broadcast on radio, Giants vs. Yankees. Speaking of the Yankees, let me introduce you to someone. I am Susan Waldman. I am the color commentator for the New York Yankees on WFAN and the Yankees radio network around the country. This year, in 2021, we're looking at the 100th anniversary of baseball and radio. For a century, broadcasters have recreated the field, inning by inning and play by play, for their listeners. Radio is very different from television. Radio, you are creating a picture because people can't see it. And television, you are putting a caption on something that they can already see. Very, very different skill set. Very different. I like radio a lot better. But don't take Susan's voice on the radio for granted. So there are 60 radio broadcasters. I am still the only full-time female. I'm still the only one since 2005. So today, at the end of Women's History Month, right before the start of a new baseball season and looking at the 100th anniversary of baseball and radio, I thought, who better to talk to than Susan Waldman, radio color commentator on New York Sports Radio for the New York Yankees. Today, we'll talk to Susan about what she does as a color commentator, how she prepares for her job, and some public speaking tips she has for all of us. Then, Susan will tell us what it's been like doing broadcasts during a pandemic and why you should care about the decline of radio in sports. Finally, Susan will tell us about the progress that she's seen since she got her start as a woman in baseball decades ago, when she would get hate mail and death threats from people and where she thinks we need to go next. Not just in the MLB, but everywhere. So, let's begin. Um, when did you get first exposed to baseball, and, and how did you become, or how did you first get your start in broadcasting? <laughs> well, that's a long, long, long story. The first um, time I was exposed to baseball was when I was three, and I had my own season ticket at, at Fenway Park. My grandfather used to take me. And, you know, when you grow up when I did, I mean, which is in the 50s and early 60s, there's no women anywhere. I just went to uh, baseball games with my grandfather, my mother, my father, my aunts. And I didn't know I wasn't supposed to know sports. I always did. And it wasn't just baseball. We went to Celtics games and Bruins games and Harvard football games. And then when the Patriots came in, we went to the see the Patriots play. I could always sing. And from the time I was two, I was going to go to New York, be on Broadway and be a star. <laughs> and that's what I trained for. Broadway started to change. I did go to New York and <laughs> be on Broadway. And I was in theater and nightclubs for about 15 years. And what I noticed was that the music was starting to change. 
Broadway started to change and I wasn't going to change with it. And either I was going to, um, you know, be play mothers my whole rest of my career or be a revival queen. Um, I better find something else to do with my life. And at the time, um, I thought, you know, the only other thing I know is sports and, uh, I don't see any women anywhere. By the time I got the radio job with the Yankees, um, this is my 17th year on the radio. Before I did that, I was a Yankees beat reporter for WFAN, and I was there all the time. Then I did television for the Yes Network, pre- and post-game shows. So people were already used to me and my voice by the time I got the radio job, because I was on, I was in their rear since 1987, you know, half of some people's lives. That's pretty much all of mine. <laughs> Um, well, first, for those of us who are less familiar with sports broadcasting, who don't follow the game as closely, um, why don't we back up? Could you tell us, you know, just give us an overview. Who's in the booth um, and and what's the job of, like, what's the difference between play-by-play, your job, color commentator? Tell us tell us a, a, about that. All right, there are usually three people in the booth. That would be my play-by-play partner, which is who is John Sterling. He's been doing it forever. And I am the color commentator. And then there's an engineer. And that's it. So everything we do, we do ourselves. Um, radio is very different from <laughs> from television. Nobody brings you things. Nobody gives you stats. Nobody, you do it all yourself. What John does is report on what he sees on the field, um, three and two pitch, slider down and away. What I do is say why that happened, what else I see, and what this could mean. Since I am not a player, I am not going to um, analyze somebody's swing or analyze. I can see it. This is not, we're not um, transplanting a kidney here. It's baseball. So anytime somebody says, you know, she never played, what does she know? I know plenty, please. Um, But it's why, to me, it's why it happened. And what the color commentator uh, should do, I think, is bring you something, if you're a listener, that you cannot get from watching it on television or reading in the paper. To give you a taste of what this all sounds like, here's a clip with John and Susan during a September 2019 game against the Blue Jays. John is calling what's going on on the field, and Susan is talking about something that would actually become a very hot topic in baseball that year. The one-two is foul back to the screen. You know how we were talking about how pitchers, when their runners on base, everything really slows down and they go through different sets of signs. I said to Aaron Boone the other day, I said, you know, I always wonder, because for years, you know, nobody did this, and people always stole signs. And he said, the technology now is so immense and so different that you really have to do this. One, two, foul, third base out of home plate. Yeah, cameras everywhere. It's just gotten much more sophisticated, so it's not somebody just standing at second base stealing signs like some of the players we know who could do it great over the years. Now there's cameras places, and they pick it up everywhere. Because I, until this happened, until COVID something happened, um, I traveled with the team. I was on the buses. I was in the clubhouse. I was in the hotels. I was, I was there. And I've been doing this and traveling with this team for, this will be my 34th year with this team in some capacity. Um, so you, you know these people. So instead of saying uh, he swung and missed at a, a slider down and away, anybody can see that. Anyone can know that. Why did he swing? 
what did he see? What did you see watching the swing that he didn't pick up? And those are the kinds of things that a color commentator should do. Not always, but my premise always is I want at least once or twice during a broadcast to tell a listener something that he or she cannot know unless I tell them. And that's that's kind of my goal every single game. I think in your time with the Yankees, they've won five World Series, right? 96, 98, 99, Yes, I have five rings, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, any memorable, particularly memorable seasons or even individual plays that you called during that time? Well, the whole of 1996 was the most extraordinary season I'd ever gone through. And that was the first one. And that was my favorite because that was also, um, we think of all these players, um, Derek Jeter, Jorge Posada, uh, Mariano Rivera, all these, we think them all of, of Hall of Famers and, and stars. They weren't stars then. Derek Jeter was a rookie. Uh, Jorge Posada was up and down in the, in the, in the minor leagues and up and down. And, um, Bernie Williams was probably the most well known of, of all of them because he had been there and Paul O'Neill. But it was a team that, Nobody expected anything out of it. A new coach, I mean, a new manager, a new group of people, and nobody knew what it was. So when the Yankees finally got to the playoffs, it was just an extraordinary time. And you just, and it was, um, you know, I happened to be standing next to George Steinbrenner when the ball went up in the air to, for the final out and Charlie Hayes caught it in, in foul territory. And I was the one that got to hug George Steinbrenner first because I was standing there. Another chance to the left side. Hayes waits. The Yankees are champions of baseball. It was an extraordinary time. It just was because nobody expected it. It was the first time the Yankees had done this for in forever. You could see that the team was building in the early 90s and it was going to get there. But 96, new manager, new GM, nobody knew it was going to happen. I think 96 is my very favorite season forever. And, um, you know, I'm still friends with a lot of those guys because it was very, very different. And you were part of it. You were part of the family and part of the fabric. We traveled with the team. We were sitting there. You went through the ups and downs um, with this team. And to see the joy in New York when they finally won was it was amazing. It was great. Now, the nice thing about doing this podcast is that we can edit it. If I mess up or a guest wants to redo an answer, if we need to go back and add something, we can. If I'm having one of those days when, you know, I can't seem to speak English and I need to do 10 takes of the voiceover part, you know, just hypothetically speaking, I can. But John and Susan can't. There are no redos. Once they say it, it's out there. For all of WFAN's nearly 2 million listeners. So that's what we talked about next. How does Susan get through a live broadcast? And what's some advice she might have for the rest of us? Susan, I want to want to talk about um, communicating on the radio. After all, that's what this podcast is about, is about communicating. Um, so tell us about the, the preparation that goes into it. Like, uh, before a broadcast, how do you make sure you're ready? How do you get into the into the right frame of mind? <laughs> I've been ready to do this since I was three. I, you, know, you know what? As I, as I said, to, to really be honest, um, when another team comes in, I spend the week, like right now, opening day is um, coming up shortly. And um, I know who we're playing. 
So I am following along on the sites, reading the newspapers of the cities. I do it about a week in advance so that I, or I call people to know what is going on with each team. It's harder right now because there is no access to the players. When, when I, in a regular year, this is what I would, what I would do. Um, the clubhouse is open maybe quarter of three if it's a seven o'clock game. I would be in the Yankee clubhouse till quarter of four. Um, doing work, talking to everybody, seeing what's going on, asking, you know, who's going to do this and what, what happens if this happens. And then I'd go to the other side and I would um, stay in the visitors clubhouse until they start having their meetings and they kick you out. And I would see how that I would see the feeling um, of what is going on with that team. So I have that to go back on. So, so it's not just watching from afar, like you have to do right now because of the pandemic. It's very, very difficult. Cause I mean, there are people on this, on this Yankee team that are going to make this team um, coming out of spring training that I've never met. And it's very, very difficult because everything that I've ever done has been because of my relationships with people and they're gone. But that then I'll go upstairs and you do your lineups and you you do look at stats and you see you know who's available and you can sort of do matchups in your head when this guy will come in and when this guy will come in, and then you watch the game. It's all background. You can't study. It's not a test, and it's it's the feel of the game. You learn. You take everything that you need. You know who's in a slump. You know who's three for ten. You know who's nine for 11 and you know, who's in a home run drought and you know, all those things. And then you put them away and you watch the game and you comment on the game and it's going on in front of you. I know it's a very stat oriented game now and a lot of analytics and things, but that's not why people watch sports. People watch sports um, for the humanity in it. One, the pitcher against the batter, the catcher against a runner, an outfielder against a runner trying to get to third. They're watching it for that. They don't, you know, it's very interesting what exit velo is. I know he hit the ball hard. I can see it and I can hear it. Um, But it's the humanity. Um, How about advice as far as um, what happens when we mess up during our presentations? Like for you, when you think about if you fumble on air, how do you recover from that? How do you keep going? How do you maintain your confidence? Oh, well, you always have to maintain your confidence. But what you do is what I do is make a joke out of it. Um, What, you know, what I do, if I say um, um, John Smith, um, it was hitting 310. And I know it's, I'm looking at the wrong stat. I said, well, maybe he was hitting 310. He's not hitting 310 right now because that's not his stat. I'm sorry. Um, and you know, and you know, my partner, John has a great one. He goes, well, I'm running my big mouth and I didn't look and no, that's not him. That's not him. Um, you know, but you have to, you have to take your audience with you. Um, nobody, you're a human being. People mess up. Nobody expects you to be perfect. You know, when you're on the air, we're on the air four hours a day. You got to make a mistake. I'm sorry. It happens. And, but you can't, you have to, you have to let the audience in on it. And that's, you know, no, no off the record jokes with your partner, no off the record things with the people that are on your team. Um, Everybody has to be in on it. I want to be in. If Susan makes a mistake, the whole world is going to know it. But, you know, your audience will go with you if you're human. If you try and cover it up and pretend like you didn't make, I'll tell you a great story. Because this is, um, in baseball when I started, um, there was a lot of kindness and there was a lot of cruelty, cruelty and not a lot in between. 
And I learned a couple of things by different players. Um, once when I first started in 1987, um, that's when nobody was talking to me. And I was always afraid to ask a question when I first started. And I had those big Morant's you know, not now, but they these tape recorders were like pocketbooks. They were big, giant things. And you held a big mic microphone. Uh, and Dave Winfield had been in a terrible Hall of Famer. Dave Winfield had been in a terrible slump. And in that game, the number one and the number two hitters had been injured, Ricky Henderson and, and Willie Randolph, and they weren't there for a long time. So they came back, and all of a sudden, Dave Winfield, who was hitting third, went three for five and a bunch of – so I had a, written down all these stats. And I said, I finally got my nerve up to ask a question. And I, I said, well, Dave, you went, blah, 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 and I made a mistake. So as I'm thinking, do I keep going, pretend I didn't make a mistake, and not be able to use the tape? Or do I stop the tape and have everybody laugh at me? And as I was thinking that, Dave Winfield pressed the stop button on my big machine and said, you know, I don't like the way I answered the last question. Can we start again? He knew I had made a mistake. And so I learned from that. I mean, you just, you, you live with your mistakes. You don't try and cover them up. You don't try and pretend you didn't make them. And once you do that, you are human and you'll take everybody with you. If you're doing a presentation and you mess up, so what? I'd like to see those other guys come up and do that without making a mistake. It's impossible. We're human beings. So, you know, first of all, don't be so critical of yourself. Everybody makes a mistake. But if you let them in on the joke, You've, you've dissipated all the fear. You've dissipated all the uh, uneasiness because they know you've made a mistake and they don't want to sit with you being uneasy. So let them in on it. Or it's just a simple, well, that's not right. It worked and it worked when I was practicing. I don't know why it doesn't work now. I mean, it's, you know, just something like that. People will laugh and then you can go on. The pandemic changed everything for baseball. Shortened seasons, empty stadiums, and revenue loss for the whole entire league, to the tune of $7 billion for the 30 teams combined. And even outside the pandemic, people have been talking about the decline of radio listenership for years. Just last February, the Oakland A's were the first MLB team to kill their English language radio broadcast at home. But Susan and I talked about why this medium might be more important than ever. First, tell us a little bit about what it's been like in the middle of the pandemic. Like, how does how does one even continue radio broadcasting? You know, you're not with John in person. Um, well, we did it all last year. It's it's quite frankly, it's pretty awful. I know I should be really thankful that I have a job, and I and I am. Um, it's it's awful. Uh, last year, in the middle of this pandemic, um, I would drive to. I was terrified. I mean, I'm older. I mean, if I get this, it's no, and this year it's it's better. But um, last year I would drive to. We did home and away in different booths in the stadium. I would drive to the Bronx myself. Drive, you know, park in the garage, um, mask, glove. I would walk up the flights of stairs because I wouldn't get in an elevator. I had spray cans. I had everything. I mean, I did everything. And John and I were in separate booths. We could sort of see each other, but not really. Um, you had no contact with the players. Everything is over Zoom. Um, 
So if you want to talk to the manager, I do a manager's report every single day, every single day. Um, Aaron Boone was in his office calling me on a number that was going right into the booth and we would uh, tape it, which is very different because the engineer could hear it. Other people down the line could hear it. So it was very impersonal. I can't talk to him the way I go and sit in his office. It's very, very difficult. Um, players would do on their cell phones, call a number, or if I had to do an interview. Um, but Zoom changed everything because you, you know, it's, you're on a Zoom. There are 30 people on a Zoom call, one player sitting in an empty room. You get to ask your question. That's it. You know, it's if, if you ask, you know, Sam Birdbath, Sam Birdbath, what did you do last night? And he said, well, I went and got drunk and I killed somebody. Um, then you, it's on to the next person. He doesn't care about what he did last night. He has his question he has to ask. And it's awful. It's just awful. You can't follow up. You can't do anything. But, you know, the game was back. And that was that was important, I think, for a lot of people. You know, when the team is on the road, it was John and me in an empty stadium. It was dark. I took some pictures and, and sent them out to people. Said, this is unbelievable. Uh, it's, it, you know, the team is in Miami and we're sitting there and you are at the uh, mercy of whoever is holding the camera down in Miami. There was one time last year, Giancarlo Stanton, I think they were in Washington and um it's the Washington broadcast. So no, they don't care what my guy is doing. So Giancarlo Stanton, um, I saw his swing and I saw him look at right field, but I never saw the ball and he kept running. So I said on the air, I have no idea. I know it's over there somewhere and it's not foul because he's still running. And that mean that came out of my mouth and and that, and everybody knew what I was talking about because you can't see the whole field when you're sitting there, you can see it. Um, when, when you're, so we had text, um, I would be on an open thread with my counterpart in whatever city the game was in. And he would text me, Zach Britton's warming up. And then I had a, a safety valve, uh, one of the women who works for the daily news, she'd say, um, Gardner is 10 feet closer to the pole than he was two seconds ago. I mean, you can't see the field. All you can see is the guy and it's impossible. So we we all became very close over text last year. All the different broadcasters, we were all together because they did the same thing. And, um, you know, you'd, I, I'd say, I see a ball going back and forth. I have no idea who that is. And the woman in the Daily News would say, it's, um, you know, whoever, it's Jay Happ. He's in there. It's, it's Chapman's up and you couldn't see. And so you become dependent on other people who are actually there. And this spring training, I've been doing games from my house. Um, I have that they've, they've upgraded. I've got a zoom link that I can hook into the truck with the yes network and, and do it that way. And I've got a Comrex machine, which hits me to the station and my engineer. And so we're getting a little used to it, but gee whiz. <laughs> I mean, it was difficult, but you know what? I'll tell you what makes it all worthwhile, Winston. Um, I can't even tell you how many people either on Instagram or sent letters to the stadium. I'm so glad to hear your voice because every you're such a constant that if when we heard you and John, it was going to be okay because there you were. And I think that's important. And that got me through that. It really got me through because it was it was very tough. It was really, really tough um, to be. And, 
you know, to go to Yankee Stadium and leave all by yourself with no fans and nothing at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. I was, you know, I was scared all the time. I mean, I was scared the whole game and the whole, the whole summer because of what was going on. You're afraid. You don't know who's walking next to you on the sidewalk. You know, everything was very, very scary. But if you can help, you try and help. You really do. You really try and, because if you can make it normal for somebody else, it makes it more normal for you. Yeah. And at the end of the day, that's what a lot of us are looking for is just a, a feeling of, of of a constant that's there. You know, you turn on, um, you know, it depends. You know, there were certain um, people that I listened to. I looked forward to like Dr. Gupta being on CNN every single day. I mean, it, he calmed me down for some reason. He was very, there was a smile. I got his voice. I got the whole thing. And he just put, laid it out. I mean, there was so much fear and so so much anxiety about everything. You have to put it away and you have to go on with your life um, in some way, but you find what makes you feel most comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about the future of radio broadcasting even outside of the pandemic? Sure. I, I know that, um, you know, with all these streaming platforms and more added every single day, uh, I think the Blue Jays just got rid of their radio broadcast team. Mm-hmm. What what do you what do you make of all that? What do you think is the is the future of radio broadcast? That re- that one really bothered me. Um, in Toronto, I think it's disgraceful um, for them to save. In the first place, they're owned by Rogers, who owns everything in the country, not just Toronto. They own everything. They own the telephones. They own the radio. They own the it's in a, and and radio. By the way, in case anybody doesn't know, there's three little people in a booth. Three. There's the engineer, there's the play-by-play guy, and the color commentator. How much could it be? I'm surprised it was Toronto only because it's Toronto. I wouldn't have been surprised if it was a really small market that doesn't have money. Um, If I were a pessimist or a realist, I would say that this is going to be the future and eventually everything is going to be streamed and nothing will be free, um, which I understand is, is good for the people that are streaming, but not good for the listener. Uh, I think people forget, forget how many people in this country do not have cable and do not have streaming things. I don't have streaming apps. I mean, I, I watch my Netflix. I wouldn't know what to do if they took the Yankees off. And people that are particularly people that are not tech savvy, as you found out when you when we first talked, um, which I am not, I want to turn on my radio and find my Yankees. And there are so many people that are like that, that, that the daily um, radio is a comfort. There are people that are alone. There are people that are infirmed. There are people that um, have no sight. And, it's, and there's millions of them. And the people that listen, the demographic, I know everybody sells to 12 to 54 or whatever that is. There's another, <laughs> there's another group. We're all living older. We all... <clears throat> want something. I get letters from people at the end of the season. What am I going to do for four months? You're like my companion at seven o'clock. Or John and you are our family. We're family. We have dinner together. My kids have grown up listening to you in the background. Um, It's important. And I think it's horrifying and not all change is progress. And this definitely is not progress. I think it's, I think it's extremely sad. I really do. To wrap up our conversation, Susan and I focused on her experience as a woman blazing her way in baseball and advice she has for others following similar paths. 
Um, so did you get that a lot at the beginning? A lot of people saying, no, you, you can't do this. We don't, we don't want a woman in broadcasting. <laughs> well, how, well, how, how blunt, how blunt can I be here? I'll tell you, one of my best friends was the play-by-play announcer for the Boston Red Sox. His name was Ken Coleman. And in the early 80s, this is long after that, and I'd already done some more shows, um, he said, you know, this friend of mine is putting together this thing. It's going to be the first all-sports radio station in the country. They're going to call it W Fan or something. He's got to meet you. And I said, oh, okay. And um, he told me to put a tape together and all that. And I went into a friend of mine's studio after his shift on on uh, an overnight shift at CBS. And we put together a phony sports cast and I went and put it on his desk, this little cassette. And they hired me to do updates along some guy who was hired to be the nasty voice of afternoon drive at the time. And once I got there, um, I realized that I was not wanted there. The first thing I heard when I did my first sports update was, um, get that smart Alec bitch with the Boston accent off my air in afternoon drive. And it kind of went downhill from there. Um, I, they, uh, say they tried to fire me at one point. So they, uh, put me on overnights thinking that I would quit because working, I was doing stuff in the day for the, for the station. And then I had to work doing updates 12 to six that backfired on because I got a name from doing that and doing all those things. And we talked all the time. Um, I would get, let's see, letters. I would get feces in the mail. I would get, um, used condoms in the mail. I would have uh, producers that took my tapes um, and cut them so that I sounded like I was a moron and put them on the air and say, see, she can't do it. Uh, let's see, 1989, I had my own police detail at um, at uh, Yankee Stadium because someone was trying to kill me. Because, yeah. And so, so to say I went through a few things, yeah, I guess I did. How have you seen it change for women in sports and in baseball in particular since then? And where do you feel like we need to continue to make progress? Well, I'll I'll tell you what um, I think, and I know there are more women. Um, I don't think I don't I don't think the progress is real in the things that are important. This is a woman in the workplace problem. This is not a woman in sports problem. And um, I, I have friends that are my age that are judges, and they can tell you stories about uh, when they were in law school. If you don't have a drink with me, I will give you a grade where you'll get kicked off law review. I know people like that. I went through 15 years of a casting couch thing in theater. It's there. Um, I know people that are secretaries. You get a job because you go out with your body. That has not stopped. And that's the insidious part. You can, you can, all these players that do things and sending the pictures and women complaining about harassment, that's out in the open. The insidious part are the people that are hiring. You can have as many people in HR as you want. It's all reactive. The proactive part has not changed a bit. There are still men doing the hiring There are still men calling who's going to be interviewed on any network. There are still men um, like they did with me taking, you know, that's, you know, I I don't like her interview. Well, let's take the guy instead. That's the stuff that's got to change. I can handle a guy making, you know, making dirty remarks that that you can handle. The stuff you can't see has not changed. 
You know, everybody made a big deal. Um, and it is a big deal when Kim Ang became the general manager of the Miami Marlins. And it's wonderful. I met Kim, Kim Ang in 1998. She was a star then. It's now 2021. It's, you know how many years this took for her to keep going and not give up? It was 15 years between her interviews for her last GM job. And you know what it took? It took someone who knew her in 1998, name was Derek Jeter, who said she, said to me once, she was a star then and she's a star now and she gets the job. It'll, it takes someone like that. And usually women that have waited that long, anybody who is in a position of prominence and you're female, you know you have to be smarter, you have to work longer and harder, and you have to be better than the people that are going up for uh, a job with you if they're male. That's just the way it is. That has not changed. It has not. There are more women. I've been in the, let's see, this is my 17th year with John Sterling. So there are 60 radio broadcasters. I am still the only full-time female. It's starting to change. I'm still the only one since 2005. And there is a, a young lady who does some games now for Baltimore, and there'll be more. There's going to be a young lady that's that's doing some games for the Miami Marlins. Don't forget, my first radio game was in 1993. It's 2021. And now we're starting to do it. So to me, if you're asking if it's changed, no, not to me, it hasn't. Maybe to um, people in it, because now there are more women being hired to do, do things. But until the people hiring and giving out the assignments and um, giving women a chance to do things that they want to do and not what they think women should be doing, nothing's really going to change. Yeah. And then how about advice for women who are going through it? What would you say to them um, from your experience? No, don't stop. Don't stop because somebody um, doesn't think you're right for something. Someone will. Um, I always give this statement was given by um, an actress named Ruth Gordon. And she worked from the time she was a young girl till Harold and Maude when she was an old, old, old lady in her 80s. And it was about Broadway, but it can be about anything. She used to say there are no failures on Broadway, only people that give up too soon. And I really believe that someone out there, what if Kim Ang had given up and said, no, nah, no, I'm going to go, going to go back to California and raise tomatoes. I mean, what, what if she had done that? She wouldn't have been there when Derek Jeter called her. You know, what if I had done that? I wouldn't have been there when um, they needed a radio announcer and George said, I think it's time. The other thing that has changed, and I'll leave this on a positive note, um, there is a network now, young, young women coming up now, there's a lot of you, and lean on each other. Back when I started, that couldn't happen. If you saw another woman walk into your station, one of you wasn't going to be there. So the other part of the insidiousness was that they pitted women against each other. I had no, I had a couple of women friends in this business, none doing what I'm doing. Because you knew in like a radio station, you would have, you know, the heavyset guy, the clown, the play-by-play -play guy, the, you know, the smart alecky guy, and you'd have the woman. We're not all the same. We're very, very different. And now I see 
networks of women I see. There are there are six or seven women that I know just right off the top of my head that are doing play-by-play for minor league baseball. And one of them's going to make it. Someone will and really make it. And But they're there. And they all know each other and they all support each other. We never had that. Never. Because in, in, I'll give you a great example for that, of that. Um, back when the Houston Astros, uh, fired their assistant general manager was a couple of years ago. And a wonderful writer for Sports Illustrated, Stephanie Epstein, wrote this article about how, what happened in the clubhouse and the, Astros themselves put out a press release that she was lying, that it was made up. It never happened. If that had happened 30 years ago, that woman would have been fired. That would have been the end of her career. It happened this time. Every male reporter that was in that clubhouse, plus the other couple of women, every single person came to her defense. That wouldn't have happened 30 years ago. So at least there's that. <laughs> and I really think that that is, is progress. And, you know, then it became, what are you talking about? I was there. Of course you did it. Nobody ever defended me. Nobody. You know, if I did that, you're on your own. And that's changed. And I kind of like that. I kind of like that part. Thanks so much for joining me for that conversation with Susan Waldman, Yankees color commentator on WFAN, New York Sports Radio. To hear Susan on the air, you can tune in on 101.9 FM or 66 AM in New York, or stream the station online wherever you are. And keep following our podcast over the next couple weeks as we celebrate opening day with a special series of episodes featuring communicators from around the league. You never know, someone from your favorite team just might show up. Well, thanks as always for listening. This has been your host, Winston Chang. Until next time.